This is the Fedora Chronicles radio show number 27, and I'm Eric Render-Kingfisk. On the Fedora Chronicles radio show number 27, I speak with Walt Schnabel from Dublin, New Hampshire, an author of the book Blood Club, which was released earlier this year. We talk about the writing process, inspiration, and real-life observations and experiences that take shape on the page. You can find out more about Mr. Schnabel's book by going to his website, joinbloodclub.com. This show is brought to you by Toadstool Bookshops, where you can buy Mr. Schnabel's Blood Club, Tony Ball's The Vaults, which we featured during radio show number 25, and countless other books. You can find Toadstool Bookshops in Lord & Plaza in Milford, New Hampshire, Depot Square in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and the Colony Mill Marketplace in Keene, New Hampshire. You can also find them on the web at toadbooks.com. The Fedora Chronicles Radio Show number 27 is also brought to you by Penman Hats, makers of handcrafted fedoras made in Hillsboro, Oregon. Get in touch with John Penman himself and order your own custom lid by going to penmanhats.com. Schnabel, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Fedora Chronicles radio show. You are the author of the book, which has been out, what, for a couple of months now, Blood Club. That's correct. What can you tell me about Blood Club? Well, Blood Club is a supernatural thriller. If you have to categorize it in some way, that would be the best way to categorize it, I think. Um, and what that means is that it has some degree of horror attached to it, some horror tropes, as they say. But basically what it is is a, is a compelling story that has some supernatural elements to it. But so we, it's not necessarily purely based in, in reality. Not purely based in reality. Yeah. Sounds, sounds pretty much like my life. <laughs> <laughs> most of our lives, I think. So um, what, what is the basic plot? Well, the basic idea is that uh, the, the main character is a guy by the name of Brian Barrett, who is a sort of an everyman type of character. He's, he's had some pretty severe issues in his life. He's um, had a falling out with his wife uh, over his loss of his business, for one thing. He, he came into his business. His, he has a small computer business, which is thriving pretty well. And he comes in one morning and realizes that his best friend and business partner has kind of gutted the business financially and has taken off with all the money. So he's left holding a, a big empty bag of bills and commitments to the IRS that haven't been fulfilled and things like that. So his reaction to that is to start heavy drinking. And so he kind of develops a romance with a bottle of uh, Jim Beam, which is extended. Yep. And his wife decides that she doesn't really want to put up with it anymore. So he comes home one day and finds a, a note saying that she has departed for New Hampshire and says that if he wants to stop drinking, she can join him and their young son, uh, Sam. Uh, and if he doesn't, if he wants to continue drink, drinking himself into the ground, then he can do that too. But his choice at that point. So he does that. He, he, he dries himself out pretty much um, and rejoins her in New Hampshire. And they are kind of trying to rekindle their romance and he looks out the back window one day. He's sort of figuring out what he's going to be doing with the rest of his life without a glass of bourbon in his hand. And he looks out onto the school playground, which adjoins their property, and he sees a young boy that looks very much like his own son who goes to the school as well. Up on the playset with a group of children watching sort of in a ceremonial-type setting, as it looks to him, wrapping the uh, climbing rope around his neck. 
And that kind of jump-starts the story, and it takes off from there. And then he realizes that this event is sort of the opening volley of a, a battle that he's going to fight with a with a ancient evil that has nested in the small town of Barlow, New Hampshire, which is a mythical town. A mythical town. A it's, mythical town. It's, it's not this one. It is not. Okay. <laughs> it is based on a number of towns that I've lived in. It's, it's a composite of many different types of towns, some in New Hampshire, some in other parts of the country, but... Okay, um, I've lived I lived a good portion of my life in New Jersey, so I have some of that just kind of wrapped into the story as well. But no, it is not a real town. It is not. None of the characters are real. They're all mythical. And and when I when I say mythical, I, I think I can explain that a little bit more. Uh, okay. When I when I first started writing the book, and this is my first book, by the way. Yeah. Um, I was struggling with how to structure it. I've taken a lot, a lot of writing classes, and you know, done done quite a bit of writing, nonfiction and fiction, and published a few things, short stories. But I never tackled a book before. So when I started, I you know, it's a very daunting thing to be looking at, um, you know, a hundred thousand words that you haven't put down on paper yet. So. Uh, so what I did was I, I started searching for, a, for structures to use. And, and oddly enough, I was watching TV one night, and I saw James Taylor being interviewed by Elvis Costello. And Elvis asked James, uh, what informs your songwriting? What, you know, what, what do you bring to your songwriting you know, that helps you write the great classic songs that you've written? You know? right. So James hesitated in his kind of hesitant style, thoughtful style that he has, and he finally said, well, you know, it's a good question. What, what they really are, I think, are, are little myths that I create to, to make sense of things that happen in my life that I have trouble putting, finding a place for. And that's, so, you know, that's what his songwriting is based in. So I got to thinking, hmm, I like that idea. And, you know, if it's good enough for James Taylor... What the heck? You know, it's, it's good enough for Walt Schnabel. Absolutely, you know, if it's good for James, then you know, I we're on a first name basis, by the way. <laughs> Only kidding. Um, so, I started looking into the concept of mythology and and found um, a guy by the name of Joseph Campbell, who, yes, who is uh, renowned for. He's, he's passed away now, but hero of a thousand faces. That's exactly. He, he was also yep. the inspiration for George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and a lot of other storytellers of the second half of the 20th century. You got it. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's exactly where I was going with it, so you beat me to the punch on that one. So I, I started reading Hero with a Thousand Faces, actually, and realized that that's a, it's a great story structure that is woven throughout many, many stories, like Star Wars and you know the, the Indiana Jones and, and all the stories that are really, really great and long-lasting stories, I think. You know? Even Brian De Palma's um, retelling of The Untouchables borrows heavily from Absolutely. the hero. Absolutely. And, and a lot of stories I think that people don't realize even are mythology, like um, Casablanca yeah. is, is based on, on a mythological structure. And, and basically what that, what that means is that um, Campbell studied indigenous storytelling around the world. And, and although they seemingly had no connection to each other, which you know, was up for grabs, I think, archaeologically anyway, um, he, he realized that there were certain commonalities in, in all of these storytelling traditions, and, and he classified them, um, I'm not sure if he coined the term, but uh, as archetypes. Yes. And they're characters and, and things that appear over and over and over again in various forms, but basically the same essence of, of that particular part of the story. Like within your story, there, there's a hero, and then there's a mentor, and then there's a, there's a larger-than-life villain, and there is like this this impossible thing they have to overcome. Exactly. 
And at some point, the mentor has to sort of drop off and go into the background, and the hero has to pick up. Right, he's kind of just uh, training him in some sense to to you know to accomplish whatever he needs to accomplish. The overall um, viewpoint is that it's a hero's journey. Yes, and and that you know the 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 hero in my story is uh, is is a more or less reluctant hero. He he realizes that you know he's he's kind of psychically wounded, so he's got a lot of um, things that are preventing him from sort of stepping up to the plate. But one of the one of the things that is present in mythologies, it's called the call to action. Yep. And, and that's when the hero, sort of the universe, uh, sort of rings the doorbell yep. and says, um, okay, time to step up, and presents them with a situation, him or her, whoever the but, hero but or is, heroine happens to be. Isn't that true in real life as well? Like I had an issue uh, two summers ago where fate did tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, this is it. This is your, You're an adult now. You have to take care of this issue. Everybody has that sort of call to action. So it's not just in mythology either. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think we all have our own, like James Taylor said, I think we all have our own little myths that we live, you know, in some sense. We're, we're, we're kind of heroes of our own story if we can pull it off. Yeah. You know, it sometimes it doesn't always work out the way we want it to, but we have to keep trying. And I think that's maybe one of the underlying points in my book is that no matter how dire things look, you, you can you can take steps to try and make it better. Absolutely. You know? Um, there's there's always redemption, you know, and I think in mythology there's always redemption of some kind. Yeah. Um, Another thing that is like I noticed about your book is that you you include a lot of um, is what's what's the politically correct term right now? Um, Native American um, mythology, like the um, like the the medicine wheel. The medicine is, wheel is actually the the structure for the book. Exactly. Um, above and beyond mythology, it's it's divided into four sections, which. In, mytho- in, in Native American spirituality, the medicine wheel is, represents the four seasons or the four seasons of life yes. from birth to death. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's really a process of how you live your life. It's a circle that you walk in your life. Absolutely. And I used, the, the book is broken down into four sections, each being based on one of those. You know, it's seasonal, but it's also um, a, the, the, the character development is, is based on that too right um, one of the things that I also noticed and I don't want to give anything away but there was also I felt as if you were squeezing in a very good point with social commentary as if like modern society is slowly devolving back into a tribal or almost feudal way of life absolutely yeah. and, and actually you're one of the few people who has really maybe some people haven't said hadn't said much about it. But you're one of the few people who has really identified that element, and that's really the deepest. Le- I think there's different levels you can read it on. You can yeah. read it as a pure thriller, which I think it's a good story, I mean, just a pure car- drama, carries you along, you know. And, and I think you really want to find out what happens to the to, to Barrett at the end. You know what's gonna you know what what's gonna happen as as the story progresses. He gets more and more pulled into the evil, or his family does anyway, into the evil that exists in the town. It almost seems as if this ancient evil that is like, I won't give anything away, was also trying desperately hard to work behind the scenes to reclaim or recapture human society or civilization that it had a grip on earlier on. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what I intended. Um, what was the inspiration for that? Was there any anything going on in your line of work or what's going on in the news that said to you that caused the light to go off and say, I, I got to add that, I got to use that? I, I don't think it was any one particular thing. I think it was more um, just an accumulation of 
things that I've developed over over the years, my own personal philosophy, I think, is, is more yeah. than anything. I, I think that we're, as a society, particularly in the United States, I, th- I think we're very manipulated by the media and by the um, by everything that we're bombarded with these days. And, and I don't think that we really get true news accounts um, because the, the, the media is controlled by a small um, group of people. I, I don't know exactly who those people are. I'm not sure that anybody does, but... Um, I know that's starting to sound a little conspiratorial, and I don't really mean it to sound that way, but I do think that we have to – I think we're being dumbed down. Yes. So that we don't – numb almost. So that, you know, our our idea of happiness is to get our paycheck, and which is diminishing more and more, and some of us don't have paychecks anymore. Right. And and to go and, you know, go to the mall and and walk around and buy a new shirt or something, and that's our idea of of happiness. Retail therapy, as my wife likes to call it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And and in the long run, what that does is it just makes us numb to everything, and we don't – when I say we, I'm saying us as a a society. Yes. Um, I don't think the powers to be really want us to think and and think – just as individuals, just act on impulse. Just yeah, you know, just just do sort of what advertising tells you to do, and, and all the things, all the things that are put in place to to move us in a certain direction. Right, and and a lot of the marketing um, is also trying to gear us towards joining these tribes. Absolutely, like the shoe manufacturers mm-hmm. really want you to join the Nike tribe, mm-hmm. or the car manufacturers really want you to join the Nissan or the Ford tribe. And it's like when you buy a, a Prius, you're not only trying to help the environment, but you're also trying to join the, the Prius tribe. You're joining a group, a mindset kind of. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's all part of the plan, too, is to, to fractionalize everything into, into little splinter groups because yeah. that, that keeps um, unity from happening. Unity is really where power is, and politically or even you know, as, a, as a structure. Um, as a human structure, and, and like you say, we're moving into a more you against I kind of thing. That's exactly. You know, we're right. over here, and, and we're the you know we're the guys that know it all. Or we're the people that know it all, and you don't know anything unless you join our group. Exactly. Or you're, you're off on the fringe, you know. And but we we know what's right, yeah. and we're going to make everything right. But or, what that's really doing is dividing people. Yeah. Into, into groups that can't agree on anything. And the only people who can join our club are Nike wearing, Nissan driving, Pepsi drinking members of the cult. You got it. I want to make a la, a la blood club. Exactly. When okay. you get an idea for a book, mm-hmm. what goes on? What's the thought process between getting the idea for the book and sitting down at the keyboard and actually typing? Well, this this particular book, as I said, I I think what I started with was a character. And my personal belief about writing is that all good stories are character driven. I mean, you can come up with a great story if the characters are clunkers. I think it's going to diminish the story. It's like in a movie, if, if it's a good story but the acting is bad and you don't really relate to the characters because of that, I think it, it really diminishes the, the power of the story. So I came up with this guy, Brian Barrett, um, because I just thought that he was a good vehicle for where I wanted to go. Um, so it started with that, and then the story sort of evolved around him or out of him kind of almost organically, out of his pain and out of his need to to reconnect with his wife and with his son and with the world in general. He was he had gotten himself into an alcoholic um, state of cocoon almost, and he wasn't feeling anything anymore. He was numb, just unlike what I was just talking about with society. So the book really is a metaphor on, on a small sense. It's an allegory for what I think is a larger problem with, with our species. With our society in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now... 
what now when you write, do you first thing in the morning, middle of the afternoon, on weekends? Uh, I'm a more of a night person, so so I'm more active. Um, I'm not real quick in the morning. It takes me a while to sort of get back into the day. Um, so I, I usually start writing about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'll work sometimes through lunch, or maybe I'll stop and take a little break and walk around a little bit, because sometimes you get stuck, yeah, and, and you sort of have to uh, work through that somehow, and sometimes it helps to take a little break and get away from, you know, pressing on yourself, and... and um, I, I think the writing process is not unlike any creative process. I think what the writer does or the artist, the painter or, or whatever the medium happens to be is really open them, opening themselves up, opening up a channel to a higher um, source. I don't want to say higher power. I don't, I don't mean this to be religious. It's more spiritual. It's more, uh, you know, I, I personally believe that there's a, there's a force that, you know, kind of, not controls everything, but it's working through everything. And th- this is where my Native American... I've studied Native American spirituality pretty extensively. And that's what Native Americans believe, that there's every there's a force that runs through everything. And, and that's their, where their reverence for nature comes in. And, and I imbued the book with that, those concepts as well. Um, as you know, you read the book, so you know that that's... The, New Hampshire actually plays a very big role in the book. It's almost kind of a character in the book. Because yes, the, yes, because it, it represents the natural world. I don't want to tell too. Much. I don't want to say too much about what my thinking processes were because I want the reader to bring their own experience to right. it. That's that's really kind of unfair. Well, the whole to. point, me having you do a radio show with me, and I hate mm-hmm. using it's, it's a podcast. Yeah. I hate to use the word podcast because I think of like invasion of the body snatchers. No, that's okay. I'm, but, I'm on board with pods. <laughs> <laughs> the the reason why I wanted to have you here is not only just to have people become interested in the book, but also mm-hmm. to inspire other people who want to write. Oh, absolutely, so. absolutely, um, or do something creatively. To that—that's the first step in, in, like I said, getting back to the other concept of being numb. You know, if you watch TV, it's, for example, the stuff that's on TV is is numbing. It's it's mindless for the yeah. most part. It doesn't make you think. There's very few shows that really make you think. It's all just you know silly situational comedies that really aren't even funny. Yes, and dramas that really aren't even dramatic. Yeah. Um, you can predict the ending after the first five minutes. You know that it doesn't make you think. It doesn't. It doesn't draw you out of normal thinking processes, which I think is what good art does. It shakes you up. But there was there was a writer who said that the job of the artist is to disturb the piece. I think it was James Baldwin, I believe. Yeah. The, art, the job of the artist is to disturb the piece, not create peace. Which in essence means shake, take the take the reader or the. You were the person by the collar and say, wake up. That's what Jim Morrison used to say, by the way, when he would scream in his concerts, wake up. Yeah. One of my heroes, by the way. Just getting off on a little tangent there. Totally understand. Love Um, the doors. Have you ever dabbled in writing nonfiction? I have. I've I've written a number of uh, articles about... I live in Dublin, New Hampshire, which was a big artist colony one time. Yep. Um, which was formulated around a guy by Ab- by the name of Abbott Thayer, who is a, is a nationally recognized artist. He's he's passed away now, but um, and he sort of this colony evolved around him, and and so uh, Dublin was a source of a lot of artistic um, endeavor at one time. So that's you know that's sort of informed the book too in some ways. I think which is also the home of Yankee Magazine. It is. It is, it is. absolutely. I've I've driven by the uh, their headquarters. I don't mm-hmm. know how many times. And mm-hmm. I keep telling myself someday I'm going to have something published in the Yankee. Hey, you never know. Yeah, never know. it would it would help if I actually mm-hmm. submitted something once in a while. That'll help. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that's that's part of the process. That, that you know that's something else on the on the kind of on the dark side of of writing and creativity is it's very difficult to get things published and. Um, 
you know, you really have to stay with it. You know, you get a lot of rejection. You get a lot of um, sometimes if you get some good feedback from some editors, and then you get some crappy stuff too that people yeah. just they're on a head trip of some kind and they try to diminish. The, you know, I, you know, I, whether you liked it or not, you don't have to. You, you can at least acknowledge the effort that went into it. You exactly. Know? Um, it may not be your bag. It may not be a cup of tea that you wanted to put in your magazine. Right. But but I've gotten some really good comments from editors, even though they didn't want to buy it. They well, would say, "Keep keep working. It's it's coming. You know, you're you're getting there, or something like that." Which know? leads me to, how did you get published? And the second part of that, what did it feel like when you finally? Well, getting published is a very long, difficult process. Um, you can try to get an agent, which is which is um, almost impossible unless you have something already published. So it's kind of a catch-22. You know, you can't get an agent until you get something published, but you can't get published until you get an agent. So where do you go with that, you know? Um, send out a lot of letters is what you do. And if you're lucky, somebody might get back to you, you know. But So what I ended up doing was going with a, with a very small publisher in Keene, New Hampshire. And I sent it to him, and he looked at it. And although it wasn't really what he does, he does things of more local. Although my book does have local interest, it also, I, I hope, has some national. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm getting into, right now, into marketing in a more national sense. So, um, I, just, I just wanted to say one more thing about the writing process, or what goes into a good story, I guess. Maybe we can finish up with this. Sure. Um, I, thought this was, I think this was, is a great, I, I actually heard this somewhere, but I thought it applied to writing really well. Um, that a really good story or a real or really good writing is like extended foreplay, and you just keep the keep the reader moving along, hoping yeah. that the big event is gonna come on the next page, and you and you put little tidbits of of um, titillation in there. But I think it's a, I think it's an apt metaphor because. Um, I think there is a there is a bond between the reader and the and the author, and, and in some ways it is it's a you you know when a, when a reader buys your book, you're, you're kind of making a compact with them that you're going to entertain them, or and hopefully not only just entertain them, inform them somehow. That's the that's the best thing that art does. Is it not? It has to entertain because if it doesn't entertain, they're going to read the first couple of pages and put it down. And I have a couple of shelves full of books. Absolutely, like that. I think we all do. You know, and it's it's a disappointment to spend um, you know fifteen twenty dollars on a book and get into it three or four pages and say, why did I buy this? You know, so you have to get the reader's interest and keep it there. Um, you know, not on not unlike. The sex act, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know, and you um, have to you have to deliver. and you have to keep bringing it along, you know. And if not, that's just just doesn't pay off in the end, you know. Exactly. One last thing. I know that you're short on time, but what's next for Walsh novel? I am uh, working on the sequel, Excellent. The Blood Club, which is an extension of the story. Well, which is what a sequel is. The 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 young boy, the son, in the, in the story, in the in the Blood Club. Um, story is grown up in the second one and he is um, entering the, the music world um, he has some special powers which have come out in the you know, the original book so as you know since you yep. read it so but that comes into play in the um, in the next book that is awesome so I'm working on that now can't wait to read it I am working hard on it excellent, excellent. hopefully it'll, I will be able to deliver it sometime in the relatively near future and then when that happens, we're going to have to have another sit-down. That would be great. I and, love it. and maybe we can have more chats in the future about the literary world. I would really appreciate Absolutely. that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a tough world. It's a shark tank, you know, and it more is. and more so with the economy the way it is and the people are not buying things the way that, you know, they have in the past. So you have to be really good, I think, to, to get noticed. Excellent. So. 
Well, great. Well, then I we will talk later. Okay. Thanks again Sounds for joining good, us. Thank you. I want to give a special thanks to Mr. Walt Schnabel for coming in and joining us here on the Fedora Chronicles radio show, and we really look forward to when he can come in and join us again. Be sure to check out his website, joinbloodclub.com, and keep an eye open for news about his upcoming projects. For this week's bumper music, we featured Neil Young's After the Gold Rush and Bob Marley's Redemption Song, both of which you can purchase on Amazon.com through our podcast page, thefedorachronicles.com slash radio. On our next installment of the Fedora Chronicles radio show, we'll be covering this year's Comic Con in New York City with Doug Palumbo, Jason and Becky Cousino, and myself. Hopefully we'll have some special guests to make an appearance. So until next week, keep your chins up and your fedoras on. 